Welcome to the Double Lift Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Hey, Glenn. Happy holidays. And we're getting back into the swing of things here with some new episodes and with our new opening quiz. What do you got for me here this week? Right. So if listeners had checked out some of the previous episodes, I was giving a few facts about a country and your job is to guess it. And Eric, you just chime in when you think you have it, although I'm going to do all the clues so that the listener can play along at home as well. So, all right. You ready? Here we go. All right. So it's the birthplace of several inventions, including absinthe, aluminum foil, or if you're in Europe, aluminum foil, (laughs) Velcro, muesli, and the Helvetica font. Oh, well, okay. I was going down one path, but I took a quick... Detour. I think I know the uh, the answer. Are those all the clues, or do you have more? Nope. No, I've got more. Okay. The, that last one, the Helvetica font. That's the kicker. I think it really was for me. It really pushed me in a adjacent country direction. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure you've got it off that. The, this country is divided into 26 regions. Those regions are known as cantons. And it is the birthplace of a very famous artist that Eric and I both appreciate, H.R. Giger. Oh, I don't think I would have gotten it on that last one. I think it was the like. first one that really did the trick. All right, so... Okay. Uh, and, and and the country, of course, I am talking about is... Switzerland? Switzerland. Yes, indeed. Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah, H.R. Giger has a museum in Switzerland in the town of Gruyere. It is, it's actually really cool. When you're walking through this very old town from like the 800s or whatever... You're walking down cobblestone streets, and it feels like this medieval town. And then suddenly the stonework starts transforming into alien biomechanical <laughs> stuff. And it just transforms as you pass through this arch. And then there's all this alien from the movie Alien, of course, if listeners weren't aware of that. Giger is the artist that designed the alien from the movie Aliens. And so in this town of this medieval town, there's this great museum to Giger. And there's even a bar there, the H.R. Giger bar, that when you go in, it's got the pilot seat, the engineer's pilot seat oh, there, Eric. wow. Like, like you can sit in those seats. Like, they're all designed that way. They've got kind of bones and carapace structures, these big giant resin chairs and all these alien technology and alien sculptures inside this bar. And sit and have some of the absinthe that was basically created in switzerland that's really cool I'm, that's going to definitely have to be on my list of places to visit when i'm when i finally get the chance to go visit switzerland for so, sure it's well worth a day visit absolutely no that's cool i've yeah definitely a huge fan of his work and in, in both the alien series and glenn can you name another major sci-fi series with artwork inspired yeah. from hr Giger? sure can what's that yeah dune uh, okay the yeah. dune that never happened Right, the Dune that never happened. I'm talking about this a series that actually did happen. Right, a series that did happen from H.R. Giger. With, with the alien specifically being being where he worked on specifically on the alien design. Boy, and we're not talking about, what is it, brain salad surgery from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Well, he did the cover art for their album. I'll the give others. you, here's one major hint, and you'll, you'll definitely get it. Natasha Henstridge. Oh, right, species. Yes, that's right. Of course. No, you're right. There was this, in my mind, I was thinking that it was like an H.R. Giger ripoff. There was a lot of ripping off of his design. No, totally. In the 70s and 80s. But no, you're right. So the uh, the reason I know that Helvetica is tied to Switzerland is because a couple years ago, I went on down this like Wikipedia rabbit hole trying to figure out why the country code for the websites yes. for... Switzerland yes. is CH. I'm like, well, how the hell is CH? I had the exact same experience. That's exactly how I learned that. So that's, and then you said Velcro. So Velcro is a French portmanteau. Vel yes. from velour, like cloth and crow, crochet, the hook. So the hook and the cloth, that's Velcro. Exactly. Very good. And portmanteau, correct? Well done, oh, sir. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, useless facts that, that, that have no value at all, just, but just live in my mind. That's my thing, man. That's my thing. <laughs> Unless you're a treasure hunter. All right. Happy holidays. We're right now recording in the week between Christmas and New Year's, hoping to get a few recorded here in this little break time that we have. And did you, did you get anything cool or interesting for uh, for Christmas? Yeah, Santa brought me an air fryer. An air fryer. Okay. Has that gone through, been used yet? I have not used it. I'll be using it tomorrow. I'm going to do chicken wings in it. 
and nice. some chips or fries, if you will. Well, I mean, separate from Christmas, but over the past few months, we've been working to remodel our living room. So we got walls painted, new carpet, new furniture for the whole area, and new big TV. So that's finally all come together. The Christmas gift with a, a 4K Blu-ray player. Ah. And I can be, you know, surrounded by, let's see, so far, Dune and the Lord of the Rings in 4K. Ah, well done. And so, that now means you must upgrade your entire collection. Well, I so far, Dune and, and Lord of the Rings, and I think, I'm trying to think if I have any other. You know what I did to test the sound, uh, the surround sound? I put in and just watched the opening sequence for Baby Driver. Holy cow. Mm, yeah. that, that sound moves around you. Yeah, that's awesome. Anyway, all right, enough of this jibber-jabber. Let's, uh, let's get into the topic here for today. Right. So today we're going to do a mishmash of various black box studies. So I'm sure listeners are familiar with us, at least at some point, having talked about the FBI noblest black box study for fingerprints. And then we, of course, in past interviews, had also interviewed Heidi Eldridge and Christoph Shampo, who did the black box version for palm prints. So what we wanted to do, because there have been a series of, in the last couple of years, black box studies coming out of Noblis and the FBI for handwriting, footwear, and bloodstain pattern, we thought it'd be interesting to do just a quick flyby overview of each of those three studies and compare them to the false positive and false negative error rates for fingerprints, just to give a sense of what these different fields tell us when it comes to the accuracy and reliability of the experts in those various domains. So if listeners aren't up on it, and as I'm finding out from week to week, we have a number of lay people listening to the episode who might not know these studies and are intimately familiar as we are since we lived these, Eric. You know. Yeah, absolutely. The false positive error rate in the noblest FBI black box study for fingerprints was 0.2%. I'm rounding up. Technically, it's 0.15%, but around 0.2%. What that means is out of roughly every 600 to 700 trials where fingerprints were from different people, an examiner made a match, made an identification, roughly 0.15% or 0.2. That's the false positive rate. That's when an examiner says it's an ID. But the ground truth is they're from different people. Conversely, when the images were from the same person, when the ground truth is that they're from the same source, the examiner said that it was an exclusion 7.5% of the time, and that's the false negative error rate. So 0.2% and 7.5% for fingers. And then a quick analysis when we go to the palm print data, Th those numbers were very nearly the same for palm prints. It was 0.2% false positive error rate and then false negative error rate of 8%, basically the exact same. So it really didn't change for fingers or for palms. And that, again, that's a very superficial look at those data. If listeners want to know more about those data, go back to past episodes where Eric and I have reviewed those papers. So that's setting the table. Any anything to add to that? No, that's I mean that's a good thing to remember because as we get into what we're talking about here today, handwriting, footwear comparison, and blood pattern analysis. I, for us, anyway, just I think it's just from our perspective. One of the things I noted was, in many ways, some of the similarities that really stood out to me, and in other ways, right. some of the huge differences. And yeah. one of the big differences being what compared to at least these three. The accuracy research into fingerprint comparisons, that's dead easy compared to the, <laughs> some of these. Just right. the different conclusions and the different kind of nuances into what goes into a conclusion. Man, I'd much rather be involved in the fingerprint research just because it's a lot more straightforward and, and less nuanced than, than what these get into. Yeah, well said. And that bears keeping in mind that in these friction ridge studies, the possible conclusions were effectively, is it comparable? And if it is, then it is an identification, is it an exclusion or inconclusive? I can't really tell. And they just kind of leave it in this gray box of can't tell. But as, as you're rightfully pointing out, these other studies, a lot more nuance, a lot other possible conclusions that could be 
reported, and that's going to really come into play. And just before we get into these other studies, I wanted to remind the listeners of one other episode that we did. That was episode 196. This is where we interviewed Gianni Ribeiro. She was this Australian researcher. We should actually reach out to her and find out where she is with her PhD. She was on this PhD Hmm. path. She had published some articles, but the article I wanted to reference here was that she had asked lay people what their sense of these other disciplines were if they were to effectively rank DNA, fingerprints, handwriting, footwear, bite marks, and firearms and tool marks, I think, were the categories that she had. Might have been another one in there. And again, just a quick summary without even going back and looking at this is just going off memory. So I'm hoping I'm getting this, remembering this correctly. What she found was that when asking lay people that they effectively assess DNA around 99% reliable, fingerprints around 95%, firearms around 90% or so, bite marks around 90%, and then faces, I don't remember where that was or if that was in that study, but it seemed like it was just below that that was in there. I don't know if you recall. And then handwriting was by far the lowest, and that was close to 50 or 60% reliability. So this is what lay people were thinking, and I think I even posited during the episode, is the lay people seem to mirror, and this was my, my, my theory, the more accessible or understandable the discipline is, like, in other words, if they think that they could do it themselves, yeah. they tended to rank it at a lower reliability. So handwriting and facial, that's something that they think that they can do, so that gets a lower reliability, but DNA is so complicated and statistical, that's something that scientists do, so that obviously has to be much more reliable. It seemed to mirror accessibility for the layperson. Interesting. So I just thought I would set that table with that reminder of this is what lay people think, but now we actually have data to look at these accuracies, and we see, of course, that the public perception is typically way off on the accuracy of these disciplines. Right. So let's jump into the handwriting discipline first. So this is from published in PNAS, Accuracy and Reliability of Forensic Handwriting Comparisons, Hicklin et al. There's about 10 or 12 authors, so I'll just leave it as with and contributors yes. to Austin Hicklin. But let me start with the end, with the false positive rate and false negative rate from the study, and then we can break it down in a little more detail. So the false positive rate from this study was 3.1%. Mm-hmm. So that is, let's see, 20 times higher than the fingerprint one-ish. And the, the false negative rate being 1.1%. So almost yeah. oh, m- much lower than, than in fingerprints. Right. And that makes sense. But with a little caveat there on the false positive, they did see quite a significant difference in samples written by twins, where the false Mm. positive rate rose up to 8.7% versus non-twins 2.5%. So if twins are involved, definitely a much more significantly higher false positive rate from from this, this test. So first off, Glenn, you seem not surprised by how much lower the false negative rate was for handwriting. Why do you think that is? Well, again, my experience with the handwriting experts, I've attended a number of their conferences, they're very hesitant to ever use the exclusion or actually in Mm -hmm. their terms, elimination term, because handwriting has such a, I'm using the statistical term, such a huge intra-source variability in likelihood ratio terms, the numerator so wide That translates to there can be such a wide range of appearance from a single writer that they're really hesitant, especially from small samples, which they're typically looking at, to ever exclude someone as an author unless they have seen effectively years and years of someone's writing. And that's pretty rare that they would have that in a case. All right. So let's get into what they did here in this study. And so it was 86 examiners participated, mostly in the U.S., but also including some examiners outside of the U.S. What I thought was interesting is that that less than half, 41% of the examiners participating, said that they do handwriting comparison on a daily basis. Another 26%, at least a few times a week. But most of these guys are doing other, presumably other forensic science activities in addition to the the handwriting analysis. And I think that's very different than what you would typically find for like latent print examiners, where most examiners are doing latent prints 
every day and as a majority of their workload. But they were also a lot more experienced than the latent print examiner group. Half of these participants had at least 16 years of experience doing handwriting wow. comparisons. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that is way tipping the scale on the high experience end. Yeah. So, and, and again, I guess as a field that's been shrinking over time, yeah. when you're seeing fewer crime labs support forensic document examinations, I guess that you have this dwindling group of examiners. So the another significant difference here is the, is the options for conclusions for all of the uh, the black box studies Nobles did for fingerprints, but even the most recent palm print one, you had exclusion identification and inconclusive. And uh, here in, in this study, they had the options available for the conclusion being written by, so ID, probably written, a support for same source type of conclusion, uh, what they call no conclusion, which was the, effectively the same as inconclusive, probably not written, and then not written, essentially the same as exclusion. They noted that this five-level scale is what's usually used in proficiency testing, but at more than half of the participants actually use a nine-level scale in their own work. Another quarter of the participants use seven levels and then the remaining either five or six-level scale. So they're all yeah. familiar. And, and that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. The, the ASTM standard being the nine-point scale. So right. yes, that's a really good point. But again, so they were very specific of explaining for this study, if you typically say this, in your nine conclusion scale, then that translates to this conclusion in this study's version of a five-point scale. So they tried yeah. to make that very clear to, to really fit what examiners are used to doing, even though there are differences in what examiners are doing. But again, there's still the middle ground, the definitive conclusions on the end, and then somewhere in between going in each direction. So then the, there's the question handwriting samples and the known handwriting samples. The question samples were about, most of them were about half a page in length. Some were less than that. And then the known samples had usually between one and five samples of writing from a single writer with about half a page for each of those samples. So there, as opposed to in casework where you might be able to ask for additional samples from the writer, here they were limited to what they were provided. But overall, there was this feedback in the survey of this work being, in general, similar to what they would see in casework. I think maybe one of the limitations being this the limited amount of writing samples that were known from a specific person. And again, we have the results out of here, 3.1% false positive. 1.1% false negative. But the thing that really jumped out at me, well, a couple of things. So first off, they went through and they, in part of the survey, they asked examiners what their training process was like. And what they were able to do is split the participants into two groups. One group had gone through a kind of a mentorship type of training of at least two years, where in those two years, they didn't do any testimony. They were just training, becoming handwriting experts, document examiners. And then after those two years, they were released and allowed to do real work. And the other group were either self-taught or as part of their training, they were also expected to do real work and testify in those initial first two years. And the, the results of those two groups were significantly different. The group that had the more mentorship type of training had much lower error rates, both on both false positive and false negative error rates. And the group that were either self-taught or were thrown into the fire right away had higher error rates, both false positive and false negative, but also had higher rates of reaching a definitive conclusion. So they'd be more likely to say yes or no one way or the other, but they were also more likely to be wrong. Right. I'm not really surprised there, but I think that's a big difference from what we saw on the fingerprint side, where training and experience wasn't didn't really seem to have an effect on on the accuracy rates in that study. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a great point, and you're rightfully pointing out rare that we see once an examiner is trained sort of past that one year to two year, we don't see a big difference in performance. But it's interesting that they saw such a distinctively different performance between these two groups here, which, well, advocates for traditional mentorship apprentice approach, which my recollection is that for a typical document examiner, 
can easily be three years. Yeah. That's one of the longest training programs in the field, and firearms being one of the other ones, firearms and tool marks. So the other thing that really jumped out at me is the graph, Glenn, if you're following along on, on figure two here, which breaks down the majority opinions or the, the average opinion for each set of comparisons. And what, what really jumps out here is that for the mated comparison sets, for a little more than half of the comparisons, the majority opinion was that they were written by the same person, essentially an ID. And there was a, a few that, that had the majority opinion of probably written, and then it trails off into this a lot of the inconclusive category in between. But on the non-mated set, only a very small handful, like two or maybe three of the samples had the majority opinion being not written or exclusion. So yeah. like you're saying, Glenn, they seem to be very hesitant to reach this exclusion or not written by conclusion. And even when it is, when they do reach that conclusion, if you hand it around to a whole group of examiners, it'd be hard to get the majority of that group to all reach that exclusion conclusion. Yeah. They're very yeah. hesitant. Yeah, that was my recollection from the examiners we had in our laboratory in handwriting was was one of the biggest arguments was the elimination during ver during their verification technical review, whether or not the data supported the elimination. And a lot of times you know, they would just default to probably not written by. And that seems to be really the most popular opinion there. And, and in talking to examiners back you know, the lab I used to work at, there's... For a fingerprint, fingerprint's a fingerprint. You leave it behind and there's not a whole lot you can do to to it. You know, really consciously change Disguising the appearance it. of it. But right. in for handwriting comparisons, you have both on one side, someone trying to make their handwriting look like somebody else's. And then you also have the opposite, someone trying to disguise their handwriting and make it not look like their own. So between right. those two activities... Yeah, both of those kind of pull in the direction of it would be hard to say exclusion in a really definitive manner. Yeah, that was my other recollection, too, about handwriting is that when they would have them do exemplar writing, they'd have them do it 20, 30, 40 times. And they would basically throw out the first 10 copies because the person is really trying to disguise their handwriting. But then they just get so tired and eventually go, ah, screw it. And then they just start writing more normal. And then stop. It, it takes so much effort to disguise your writing, which is why those first samples are useless when the person is deliberately yeah. trying to hide their writing. The, the authors of the paper here really called that out. There is relative difficulty of excluding versus identifying a writer in this study. Yeah. All right. So then just to wrap this up, the overall uh, repeatability was fairly good. 92% being repeated within plus or minus one conclusion category and only 1% of the conclusions being completely opposite, and, and most errors not being repeated by the same examiner. Uh, most errors not being repeated, and that could be either an incorrect association or non-association. Exactly. Right? Yep. Yeah. And let's see, for reproducibility, about 85% being reproduced within plus or minus one conclusion level, and about 1% of conclusions being co contradictory to each other. So mm -hmm. there's... I think that's relatively consistent with what we uh, we saw on the fingerprint side as well. Right. And again, I know we've talked about in other episodes when we've looked at studies of the OSAC conclusion scale that allows for qualified conclusions yep. and associations. That's exactly where my head is going, plus or minus one category. I think that kind of fits with my own personal observations as well. My own data that I've been collecting on laboratories using the OSAC scale and then what I've been seeing in the literature. So that kind of fits. All right. So I think this is maybe of the three here we're going to talk about today, the one that kind of matches up most closely with fingerprints. Sure, I would have predicted that going in, but but let's let's move into footwear comparisons and and see what the results of that study are. Well, that's interesting, Eric, because I actually thought that the footwear one was closer to fingerprints, but I guess we'll explore that a little bit. Okay. It, that's interesting. So there, yeah, there's um, one little kind of little thing in footwear that I think, well, we'll get into it. So go ahead and start with your okay. overview of the footwear one. Sure. All right. So the footwear black box study is similarly titled, The Accuracy, Reproducibility, and Repeatability of Forensic Footwear Examiner Decisions, again by Hicklin, 
et al. and others. And again, this is through the Novelist Company who does these studies in conjunction with the FBI and a number of prominent footwear examiners. So in this study, they had 84 footwear experts looking up, looking at up to 100 trials, but not all of them doing 100 trials, for a total of 6,610 total trials between these examiners. Most of them were from the United States. About 96% of these were from the United States. That was actually one of the highest in all these studies. That surprised me a little bit, given that so many other countries, especially European countries, have a lot of footwear examiners. I was surprised there wasn't more international participation. The overall false positive error rate was 0.2%. So that's identical to the fingerprint yeah. false positive error rate. And the false negative error rate was 6%, which is very similar to the 7.5%. That's why I thought the those numbers were more similar because they were proportionally similar to the fingerprints and then nearly dead on to exactly the fingerprint number. So so I was a little so I was that's why I think I was surprised by your previous statement. That makes sense. And yeah, and then they also had the rate of what I call misleading evidence, I shouldn't say I call, but I and others call. This is when they said there was an association, not an identification, but kind of they're probably from the same shoe, same impressions. And that was 1.4% of the time. So that's the rate of misleading evidence with the examiner saying that there's an association here when in fact they're from different shoes. And 1.8% when they were from the same shoe, but the examiner said these are probably from different shoes. So that's the rate of misleading evidence, which was very similar in the Busey study to fingerprint data as well, when fingerprint examiners opened up that box and said strong support for same source or strong support for different sources. Those numbers are almost spot on with those as well. So again, it just seemed to me that those numbers mirrored the fingerprint world. One of the things I found really interesting about the footwear examiners, and this was something that I think we highlighted in when we were looking at the Busey study, was that they only use definitive conclusions, identifications, or exclusions about 40% of the time, meaning 60% of the time, they tended to use the qualified associations or non-associations. And that I found pretty interesting because, again, like the handwriting folks, not only do they not use exclusion a lot, they don't use identification a lot either. Mm. And in the 60% of the time that they said a qualified conclusion, that broke down to about 14% was some kind of probable, 40% was class characteristics were involved, and 6% were just right down the middle, neutral, not going to say anything. So they tended to really live in the mm, could be or probably is, but they just didn't go as often to the ID or exclusion side of the house. Any thoughts on that? Well, so I think for me, this is where... This is why it starts to be less like the fingerprint side is because the uh, once you go on to the non-mated samples, the non-mated samples get complicated because mm -hmm. if the non-mated sample isn't the same shoe, but it's the same make and model and size, yes, then the appropriate conclusion is this more like association, right? It's the same make and model. It's just not the same shoe. Right. And and parsing out all those differences, okay, what is the what's an appropriate conclusion for this sample starts to get complicated. And looking through the data, it was like, oh, geez, that like I can't imagine trying to parse out what fingerprint accuracy study would look like if we said, well, not an ID, but it's the same pattern, right? These are both mm -hmm. worlds. Okay, that's going to just throw a whole huge wrench into into how you calculate accuracy. For us, it wouldn't be useful information, but for the footwear, it may be. So going through all this, it was, oh, right, okay, there's this and there's that, and then there's just so much to, to parse out and try to understand and strings to pull on these different conclusions. Yeah, and to that point, again, for listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with footwear, so, right, so obviously in footwear you have class characteristics, which are the outsole design or what we lay people probably think of the tread or the pattern of the sole of the shoe, the bottom of the shoe. So you have that basic design pattern, is it a similar pattern or not? But in this study, they use a lot of the same kind of make and model of shoes. So one of the other class characteristics were size differences. 
And then, as you're pointing out, a real nuance in this was, you know, some examiners might exclude if they were, say, a full size difference, an eight versus a size nine. But what if it's a nine versus a nine and a half? You know, there's a little bit of measurement uncertainty there. So are they wrong to exclude if it's a half size difference? You know, that might depend on the on some of the latent that might depend on some of the training. I thought that was interesting. Because as you're rightfully pointing out, they have a whole different thing to think about of at what point do you exclude or include on a class characteristic? I think this paper did a really good job of explaining this, where there is this initial question of, okay, is this the same make model size kind of question? And then if if that's consistent, are there enough randomly acquired characteristics in the impression to then compare against this known source. And then if there are enough of those, do they actually match? So then after you go through all three of these questions, then you could end up at the identification conclusion, but you may get off track and not be able to make it through all three for many different reasons. And so being able to be going through and explaining all that in the paper, I think that it was very helpful in, in really highlighting the nuances of footwear comparisons. I agree. I, if there's one other thing that maybe I missed it, but not only are these racks present, right, in the known impression and the latent impression, but one of the things that was so different about this study was they didn't just give them one photograph of the questioned or unknown mm, yeah. footwear impression. They gave them multiple. And I was shocked at how many images they gave them of the known sets. Not only did they give them test ink impressions, but they gave them photographs of the actual shoe. Because one of the things that they want to look at is not only is this randomly acquired characteristic there, but is it showing up multiple times in multiple exemplars? And that's cool because that's something that I don't think we think about in fingerprints as much. I can think of an agency such as the FBI that definitely thinks about that. They won't use level three detail in a fingerprint unless it shows up in multiple exemplars. Mm. In other words, is the randomly acquired characteristic demonstrably reproducible across multiple known sets and exemplars? And that's something footwear people think about. But I don't know that we think about as much because we don't often have multiple sets that we're comparing against to determine if it's reproducible. I thought that was actually kind of cool and, again, showed another insight to the way that a footwear examiner might look at a characteristic. Yeah, I mean, looking at these comparison sets that they have as examples, the first one, you see three different photos of the questioned impression or the quote-unquote latent under different lighting conditions captured in different ways. And then for the known, two test impressions, two different test impressions of the, of the sole of the shoe. And then five photos of the shoe itself with even all over lighting and then lighting from different angles to really pull out any kind of any of those characteristics that are in the tread. Oh, and most importantly for footwear examiners, they must have loved it. An actual scale in the photograph (laughs) and parallel to the camera. Yes, (laughs) there were some they did make a note that there were some examiners that did say they had difficulty in the comparison because they didn't have the physical shoes available to them. Um, Yes, 10% said that they really couldn't reach some of those definitive conclusions without having the actual shoe present to compare from. Right. So for the participants in this study, the thing that really jumped out for me is that no one, not a single participant in this study said that they do footwear examinations every day. Only less than 10% did footwear examinations a few times a week, and then more than half, it was only a few times a year. Uh, yes. So this, even I, more so than the handwriting group, this is a this, these are examiners that are definitely assigned to uh, other tasks, primarily latent print examiners, that occasionally some, spend some of their time doing footwear. Yes. I just had dinner with a footwear examiner a couple of weeks ago, and that was all she talked about. Well, I shouldn't say all she talked about, but <laughs> that, she mentioned that multiple times, just how frustrating it is that she doesn't look at enough shoe cases. She does more proficiency tests, it seems, in a year than actual footwear wow. cases. And that's really frustrating. It seems that the big issue there is that footwear impressions are just not being collected at crime scenes like they used to. Right. Is that, that's the impression... Or the impression. Yeah, but no, she, that's what she said. She said that they 
almost never get any cases coming in. Again, more proficiency test cases than actual cases. It's not that criminals are just not wearing shoes anymore. It's just, <laughs> it's that the evidence isn't being collected like it used to be. Right. And the cops look at DNA as, well, let's just swab everything as opposed to taking photographs that require scale and a little bit of skill with photography and setting up a tripod to properly right. capture the footwear impression. Yeah. One of the other things I, that was similar to the handwriting study was that this study also looked at reproducibility and repeatability. So how often did other examiners agree with the conclusion? And then when in, in this study, an examiner had to do up to, I think it was, they were given some set of either somewhere between 100 packets to look at, but not all, not everyone finished all 100. And then they were also given some repeat packets of packets they had seen previously, but have been renumbered and repackaged. So they're looking at some proportion of samples that they had seen before to see if they reached the same conclusions. So when it came to, for example, the incorrect associations, the incorrect identifications, the false positives, about 1% of those were reproduced by other examiners. So there were, must have been a couple of samples in there that were fairly tricky and that tricked some sets of examiners. But when they gave the same false positive back to that examiner, that examiner never repeated the same error. I found that pretty interesting mm. that some examiners were fooled by some and made the same mistake as another examiner, but the same examiner never made the same false positive twice. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And then when it came to the false negatives where they made an erroneous exclusion, 20% of those were reproduced and only one was repeated. And that reminded me a little bit of the fingerprint study yet again where the false negatives were would have been mostly caught during verification but not all of them. Uh, that sounds very similar to this where some of the false negatives would have been caught during a verification procedure, but not all of them. But it looks like almost all of the false positives would have been caught. And down in the final discussion and conclusion section, with all of these kind of nuances in the conclusions and how, you know, association, even though if it's, just, if it's not from the same shoe, but it's the same size and tread and everything, one way to push aside all of the kind of noise and then focus in on the accuracy is looking at the positive predictive value. So when the examiner said ID, you know, how often was it actually from the same source? Were, were they correct in, in making that statement? And it was 98.8% of the time. Um, yeah, that's real similar. So, I mean, we're up at 99.8, yes. so, but it's definitely close. But they uh, only... Those erroneous IDs all came from just four of the examiners, and yeah. half of all the IDs of all the errors came from just one examiner. So that's, it's amazing. I think there's a there. You've seen we've seen something similar on in some of the fingerprint studies, especially the white box on the fingerprint yes, side. Yes, we did. And which is unfortunate, but you know I think they really were clear here in that it just shows that quality assurance departments need to have steps in place to identify if and who in their agency are the examiners that fit this type of classification that tend to make most, if not all of the errors and, and then addressing that. So the, and then the other side, the negative predictive value was 91.2%, similar, slightly better than on fingerprints. Oh, so, yeah. but you know, that's a different way to look at it that, that can I don't know, clear away again, some of that noise and confusion from the different conclusions, the inconclusive, the support for either way, and then really focus in on when you make this conclusion, how often are you right? Right. When you make a definitive conclusion. Yeah. Right. Which, again, only happened 40% of the time. So, I mean, it balances, it balances there. Yeah. When they're sure and when they're sure they're right. All Most right. of the time. So I don't I didn't read the handwriting one enough in depth. Do you recall if they were able to identify a similar thing in that study about who attributed who could they attribute the errors to? What was it the same thing that there was a handful of examiners who made or 
they found that they were fairly distributed across most of the participants. I don't recall seeing that same type of the errors focused in on a small number of examiners. But again, that, that was also just because it, the, the false error rate was so much higher, right? 3.1% versus 0.2. Right. So just by that very nature, you're not going to have it focused in on, on just a few people. Right. I, exactly. I'd expect them to be a little more distributed when it's higher like that. And again, if people don't recall, in the fingerprint black box study, there were six false positives. Two of them were made by one examiner right. and then one made by the, the other five each. And in the palm print, it was a similar thing if I recall that there were a couple of participants, maybe two or three, who had made significant number of errors and then they're distributed across the remaining but there were a, a handful of outliers that had made not just one but multiple errors right that, that's my recollection from those all right moving on to bloodstain pattern yep absolutely okay so the bloodstain pattern paper is titled the accuracy and reproducibility of conclusions by forensic bloodstain pattern analysts again by Hicklin at all, and it would include a number of folks from the bloodstain pattern community, as well as Tom Busey. I was surprised to see Busey's name on there. And another another familiar name, Madeline Odemore, who was Cedric Newman's grad student. So yes. it's kind of nice to see, see them on there. And then some very famous bloodstain pattern folks as well, Paul Kish and Anyway, so this study I was pretty fascinated by because maybe I was a little more biased here because bloodstain pattern is something that I did for a number of years. And one of the things that stood out to me right away was just exactly as we talked about, Eric, most of the participants in this said that they don't look at a lot of bloodstain pattern cases and that half of the participants said they look at fewer than five cases a year. That was my recollection, too. When I was working for the state... I was lucky if I got three cases a year, and probably one of those was a proficiency test. It, I just didn't see a lot of it. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It just wasn't useful in a lot of cases. It's not that I didn't see blood stains at crime scenes. I'd see them all the time. It just wasn't useful information. There's a gunshot. Well, there's a cartridge case. The guy's brains are all over the wall. Yeah, it's pretty obvious what happened here. Wait a minute. What's only... going on here? <laughs> right. I mean, the only time it might be useful is was he standing was he sitting was he laying down and one of the things about bloodstain pattern is it often involves a lot of information you often need a lot of case information to even determine if it's useful examinations in the first place and it's often used to sort of dispute someone's claims it was self-defense he was coming at me so i had to shoot him in the head and then it turns out no that's actually a contact wound he was laying down on the ground and his head was facing down so no that does not fit with your story so i thought that was pretty interesting that like like some of the footwear stuff they have a lot of other duties that they do they don't look at a ton of cases and this was also a very international group as well yes where over 40 percent were from outside the united states roughly 60 percent were from the United States. So a lot of international participants and a lot of individuals that don't look at a lot of cases per year, but that's not necessarily uncommon. And I'm also going to theorize in a lot of your maybe safer European countries, maybe not a lot of gunshot wounds and blood stains and violent bloodshed cases. So you might not get exposed to a lot of really violent, bloody cases. Just theorizing. Well, let's not bury the lead here. The abstract itself really contains a sentence that distinguishes this study from the other two and from the fingerprint one that I was really shocked to see really right from the get-go. And it's, our results show that conclusions were often erroneous and often contradicted other analysts. Yeah. That's not a sentence you saw, you, I've seen in any other accuracy study from any other discipline. That That, that stood out like you know. Yeah, it's funny. I wrote that down, too, and I kind of had a little comment like, I don't know, that sort of irritated me a little bit because of all the studies. This one, I mean, it's still a noblest study, but yeah. I mean, I'm noticing sort of absent some of your typical FBI folks on it. There isn't an FBI association here. I was a little surprised at that, that, yes, it's definitely higher than the other studies. All the other ones that we've seen so far, it's by far the highest, but 
Here's one of the things I want to mention here in this study and what makes this one so different. So every study we've talked about so far is all about correct source or incorrect source. Right. So we don't have that in blood stain. No. Nope. It's all about activity level. So now it's there isn't really a false positive or false negative. It's whether or not the analyst has made an incorrect determination about the cause of something or has given an incorrect response. So they refer to erroneous responses or contradictory responses, but they don't really talk about false positive error rate because that doesn't exist here in that same sense. I thought that was pretty interesting because now you're going to be lumping in, right? So if you were, I guess an analogy would be if you were combining in your other studies your false positives and your false negatives and just called them erroneous responses, then I don't know that hmm. these numbers are actually all, I mean, they are still higher, but they're not as, I think, out of line in some of the other studies if those were lumped together. See what I'm saying here? Yeah, yeah. So basically the what it's saying here is when 11% of the responses were erroneous, so that'd be like adding in for fingerprints the 7.5 plus the 0.2. Yeah. Granted, that's still less than 11, but it's right. not crazy different. Right. That, that I guess that's my whole point here is that it, it makes things a little bit apples to oranges to compare. Yeah. So I don't know that I, if I was an editor on this or, you know, one of the authors, I would say, do we really need this sentence in here? Isn't this a little unnecessary as authors? Let's just report the data and let other people decide. Is this you know, un unusually or inappropriately high? But okay, fine. I, I could look past that. I wanted to put it in perspective, though, with another study. They said that there hasn't been a large-scale study in bloodstain patterns, and I don't know that's exactly true. There is another study in bloodstain pattern. It may have come around, out around the same time. I'm looking right now. It actually came out several years before the, before the Black Box study. So it came out in 2016. The other study was done by colleagues of mine, Michael Taylor from New Zealand and Terry Labor and Paul Kish and these guys and Nikki Osborne, some names that you might recognize who have been involved with our podcast and other sources. But they did a series of studies that published in Forensic Sciences called the Reliability of Pattern Classification and Bloodstain Pattern Analysis. They did several parts, one when they had on rigid surfaces and one on fabrics. I'm just going to give a couple of the error rates from the rigid surface because I thought this was interesting. So you said that the incorrect rate of response from the participants was 11% or so, right. right, from the black box study. So from the Taylor et al. study in 2016, their incorrect classification rate, this is what a bloodstain pattern analyst says, here's what I think this stain is. I think that this is an impact stain or this is from a drip or this is a transfer. They're basically determining the mechanism by looking at the stain. Their incorrect classification rate was 13%. And that was for all conditions. That was lumping, lumping, lumping in all of their conditions. So 11% to 13%, which I thought was pretty interesting. I mean, right on point there. But here's one thing that was different about their study. It was actually 11% when the conditions were neutral. In other words, the examiner was just shown the photograph and given no information, which is exactly the information, exactly the design in the black box study. 11.2%, mm. 11% in the Taylor study. But in the Taylor study, they also gave them some scenarios where they gave them misleading case information, and then they also gave them some accurate case information. When the case information was misleading, the error rate jumped up to 20%, and when the information was accurate, the error rate dropped to 8%. And I've always found that pretty fascinating, that basically when they were given correct contextual information that they were relying on, actually performed better. And when the information was wrong, it went way bad for them. I mean, it practically right. doubles the error rate up to 20%. But I found that pretty fascinating. You throw out just that little factoid, neutral condition, no information, 11% compared to the 11% in the black box study. So that shows me some consistency amongst these different study designs that they're right around that 10% or so yeah, they're misclassifying the the mechanism of bloodstain. 
So just based on those numbers, Eric, any thoughts about that? Roughly one in 10 times they're making a misclassification about the mechanism. Any thoughts that you might see in there? Or where might you expect to see some of that in a crime lab? So, I mean, my thought, and it's even reading through here, was I'd be interested in knowing a little bit more, kind of slicing that down a little bit more, right? Where are examiners getting it wrong? Is it mm -hmm. when they're saying that it's from an impact? Like that, that That's like the, uh, or yeah, is yeah. it from expiration? Exactly. Or like, what is the actual source of yes. the pattern versus what they're saying? And when are, are examiners getting it more right or less right? Yes. And so just so I can have a better sense of when they say X, how, yeah. how, how much weight should I put behind that right. conclusion? Because it's not, like you're saying, it's not a match or not match kind of thing like everything else. It's much more of this kind of, this context is a sentence, a statement. The, this blood was left through, through high velocity or expiration or impact or like whatever, but and I didn't see that here either in this study it, of slicing out those differences. Yeah. So gr exactly. Great analysis. That was exactly my thought. And I had a thought that I might go look in the appendix. Maybe it's there in the yeah. appendix. But I thought the I same thing, but I didn't get a chance to look at it. I decided to go to the proficiency test source of CTS because I had the same thought. Because I figured if it's happening at, at that rate, it should be showing up in the errors on CTS tests, yeah. right? So I went to the CTS website. So this is a manufacturer who provides proficiency tests. And one of the tests they provide annually is a bloodstain pattern test. And so I went and looked at the last five or six years of proficiency test data. And guess where I found the most errors, Eric? And you put your finger right on it. The impact stains, cast off stains. Ex expirated blood, not in like the transfers or the drips and the swipes, but some of the more complicated ones, some of the ones, there are certain stains that are more likely to be misclassified mm. than other kinds of stains. What I saw was that for the, e what I'll call the easy ones, transfers and these swipes, wipes and soaking and dripping, the, you know, the times that examiners got them wrong on a proficiency test were 1% or less. So they're getting them right 99% of the time. But when they started moving to like expirated blood, impact, cessation versus cast off, that's when there's a bloody object that stops suddenly, it hits something, and then basically blood continues in a forward motion off of the object that's cessation. These kind of things, that's where the error rates were. And it was closer to roughly, well, one of them was actually 13% of the time they got it wrong. And it was, a, I looked at it, it was, it was a trickier one. And I was seeing more like 5% to 8% errors on those so i th i think that's where your curiosity was the same curiosity i had that there are certain stains that we might want to be a little more skeptical when the examiner says i'm sure it's this that's where the error rates right. appear to be higher interesting so it sounds like you you don't think it's quite fair for that this line here in the in the abstract saying that that the conclusions were often erroneous and often contradicted other analysts then maybe that needs a little bit more nuanced as to under certain circumstances the the errors and the disagreements between examiners are more pronounced under specific circumstances and maybe that should have been highlighted here yeah I, that's actually a pretty fair way to say it I, it's not so much whether it's to me, fair or not, it's unnecessary. I mean, if you're reporting data, I don't see the need for commentary. I mean, who who is it to decide if what that's an often. inappropriate error? I mean, as long as everyone understands that there are certain tests, certain diagnostic tests that are less accurate than others. If I'm going to the doctor and I'm getting a certain kind of test and I know that 10% false negative or 10% false positive rate, all right, well, that helps me make an informed decision. Yeah. But I think as long as experts are clearly talking about and when i and when other experts are testing on these kinds of stains they're getting it wrong one in ten times okay well that puts things in perspective a little bit whereas i think other kinds of stains at least based on what i was looking at in the proficiency testing they're almost never getting those sorts of stains wrong the there are certain stains that are just obvious there's really only one kind of thing that can make it but then there are other kind of activity level issues that can create very similar or even 
have some of the same characteristics or elements you might find in one stain pattern that are in, you know, from two different mechanisms. The cause can be confused for the effect. Got it. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think not only is that an unnecessary statement, it probably could be, I think, managed a little differently. One of the things I like about this study was that they effectively gave examiners test questions in two different formats. One, they gave them multiple choice type of questions. So they might show a stain pattern and go, which of the following mechanisms may have caused this pattern? And it might be impact or cast off or expirated blood or whatever. Give them four or five choices and then have them effectively assess, is it, are you definite on this or likely or not really sure, that kind of thing. And I like that they did it in that way. They also gave them a number of questions where they gave them a text response and allowed them a little more information. They went back through later with experts and they tried to define when they made an error or let's call it an inconsistency in their response. You know, might have been one of those things where in an actual case really wouldn't have mattered that much. So maybe the person said that maybe they're only they thought it was probably this mechanism, but they didn't want to rule out another mechanism that could have been a thing. So they said yeah, it could be this thing. And maybe that was an off an outlier compared to the other responses. They want to necessarily call that an error. But when they were saying definitively it's this or it's not that and in a case, it would have been a really important thing. They called that an error that was most consequential. Mm. And they found that 22.5% of the errors that were made were most consequential. So even of that 11% that you pointed out in the abstract, not all of those were consequential errors. Some of them in the context of the case may not have actually been that critical. They went a little bit further and found that of the most consequential errors, 9% of them were in classification issues. The examiner misclassified the mechanism for the stain, and it would have been consequential in a case. But only 5.8%, roughly 6%, for some of the text questions where there's a little bit more expansion, a little bit more, well, partial credit here, and that kind of thing. I thought that was interesting when they started breaking things down that it looked a little less severe than I think, again, the abstract may have led me to believe. The uh, the final thing for me that stood out was how this paper, uh, in contrast to the others, really emphasized the semantic or wording differences between mm. examiners as a key issue, where yes. many of the disagreements and maybe even some of the errors may not have really been errors, but come down to these semantic differences where the different examiners of the field hasn't come to an agreement on what some terms mean. I had the same issue when I went through the CTS test. I was looking at the different answers and went, all right, is, is that technically an error or not? Or could that be missing? Could that be part of that? I had the exact same thing when I went through that, trying to figure out, no, that's an error or that one's not. And that might have been my own semantics because even CTS doesn't say that's an error. They just list what the different responses are and then they li- then they describe how the stain was created. It's kind of left to the agency to decide if that's an error or not. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. That's, that's another episode. <laughs> right. That's another one. So it's almost as if the overall the results of this paper have to really be seen through that lens of, okay, hold on. Like We did all this data. We, we gathered all this information of this accuracy. But you know, really, before we can finalize what this all means we got to get the house in order of figuring out what all these terms mean, be consistent there, yes. and then really kind of redo this to get a better snapshot of you know the accuracy of what examiners are describing after they can all agree on what everything is called. Yeah, that's a really fair point. When you're talking about activity level things, language, especially people in different countries, there could be a huge language barrier to some of those things. I mean, I've never found in teaching all these other countries, and identification is an identification in in every country I've been to, there's a term for that. But it may not necessarily be the same terminology, and there can be some language issues. And you're 100% right. Getting standardized language is a hallmark. Like, that's a step one, a hallmark to any science. 
you need to define your terms and make sure people are using consistent terminology. I see only one solution here. The entire bloodstain pattern field, Latin. Get everything back to Latin, just like the uh, biologists do it, and then everything will be fine. Yeah, I like that. Good suggestion. <laughs> so I, that's a great that's a great takeaway from that, and I fully agree with you on that. I had a couple of other takeaways, too. Okay. One of the ones I thought was interesting was that unlike the fo the footwear one and more similar to the handwriting one, that what was deemed an error was made by many of the participants. In fact, they basically said if there was a participant that ended up looking at over 50 samples, they didn't just make an error. They made multiple errors. Mm. These were distributed across the group. That was actually a fairly common thing for a participant to have not just one, but multiple errors. I thought that was pretty interesting, too. The last thing that stood out to me was that positive predictive value. So that's basically when an examiner says definitively, this is what I think is going on. I'm sure of it. It turned out that they were right 87% of the time with respect to the ground truth. And that to me is kind of a great takeaway. If I'm, I mean, if I want something, right, to kind of look at it, how good is bloodstain pattern analysis? When someone says, like, I'm sure it's this pattern, this is what's going on, the right 87% of the time. Now, is that too low? Should it be higher? Should it be closer to 95? You know, what's our goal? That's where I think you're right. The recommendations for improved terminology and these other things. But it was still one of those takeaways I thought, we need to put that in perspective. I don't think that this means it shouldn't come into the courtroom. I think the study is going to give bloodstain pattern analysts a lot more trouble in the future. Yeah. But understanding that 87% and that there are certain patterns that maybe they get, if you break that down to there are certain patterns they rarely get wrong and then certain patterns that they do get wrong. Well, let's put that in perspective for expertise. So what was that positive predictive value again for bloodstain pattern? 87%. All right. So contrast that with handwriting. The positive predictive value was 93 for footwear. What, let's see, 98.8. And then for fingerprints, 99.8. As just a, a rough way to compare these different studies, looking at this one fairly important metric of positive predictive value, you can see how they fall, you know, in relationship to each other. Right. And, and I would go back to the Gianni article that we mentioned at the top of all of this. And now when we're ranking that and looking where things are, I mean, handwriting is a hell of a lot better than lay people would have thought. But still, obviously, some errors with bloodstain pattern below that. And then footwear and fingerprints right there at the top and very close to what we might expect from DNA. Although I, we don't have right now the black box data from a DNA study for false inclusions, false exclusions, et cetera, yeah. other than the NIST studies that that's a whole nother episode we could get into. And we could easily point out that I suspect that it's going to be a lot lower than 99% positive predictive value in, in complex DNA mixtures. Right. Especially in those, in that specific one. Right. Yes. Interesting. Okay. All right. So Glenn, like final takeaways from all three here. Forensic science is great, but not perfect. <laughs> and that I agree with PCAST, what they said years ago, when you don't have statistics, then these error rates are pretty darn critical for lay people to understand how much faith should I put in this expert's opinion? And I would love to see this in other fields. I think it is a travesty that medical examiners aren't being held to this. Medical examiners walk in the courtroom all the time and go, well, based on a reasonable degree of medical certainty, I can tell you the nanosecond this person died and exactly how they did with 100% certainty, and I'm never wrong. I mean, they have these sort of ridiculous statements, and they're not held to the same thing. I would, I agree with PCAST. These are the kinds of statistics that if I want to properly evaluate how much faith to be putting into this and weighing that in the context of a case. These are the kind of statistics I would want. It shows that forensic scientists are good in some disciplines, very good, but not perfect. Right. And like the fingerprint black box study from, oh, Jesus, 11 years ago now, was that when <laughs> that was published? 
We're getting old, Glenn. The these results do not for none of these none of these three do not take into account the verification step of the ACV process. So throwing that in that adds another whole level of accuracy above what you would establish from this. And I think multiple you know times throughout all three of these articles. They mention how blind verification can be estimated from uh, from the results in these studies, although blind verification may not be standard practice in a lot of labs that do this work. Right. Using those reproducibility data as a proxy for verification. Right. All right. Well, very good. Looking specifically at positive predictive value, right, as, as my favorite metric of these types of accuracy studies. Is fingerprints still on top? Yeah. Seems like we are top dog. Maybe our studies were just easier. That's what they could say. <laughs> eh, well, we'll just we'll keep our claim to the top spot here until someone dethrones us. But yeah, fair enough. All right. So, Glenn, what what kind of classes do you have coming up here next year that people might want to attend? Yeah, sure. We are doing a rare Canadian class. It'll be in Calgary. That is March sixth through the ninth. That is with John Black. That is the Exclusion and Sufficiency course. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com if you're interested in that, especially Canadian examiners. And then I'll be teaching in Houston, Texas. That's the ACE V course. That is April 17th through the 21st. And then finally, practical answers for challenging questions, the courtroom. That is with Carrie Hall and Brendan Max. And that is our courtroom course. And that is May 1st through the 3rd in Seattle. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com. And then I'll also be having a new cycle of webinars in the spring as well. Go to EvolveForensics.com to register for those. What about you, Eric? Any at least conferences coming up in the near future? Well, so winter time is kind of the slim time for conferences, but I do have a whole slate coming up in 2023. If you're going to be in, I know I'm going to be going to Nebraska and the, the big II conference in the D.C. area, I think technically in Maryland and to Texas and California and Florida. But if I'm hoping to go to another whole slate of conferences in the new year and see a whole lot of people again. So great. definitely recuperating here, getting some energy back here during the, uh, the Christmas break before striking out on the road again for another big year. I think last year I did, I ended up being like eight or nine conferences. Too many. It's, Too boy. many. <laughs> I... It's one of those things where I love it, but also at the same time, you can have too much of a good thing. Yes, uh, your liver will thank you for fewer conferences. <laughs> All right. So if you guys have any questions for us or any suggestions of what we should cover here in an upcoming episode, please send us emails, glenn, G-L-E-N-N, at eliteforensicservices.com or eric at rayforensics.com. Go to our website. Uh, we've got a merchandise page there with a bunch of t-shirts and neckties and posters and all sorts of crazy stuff. We're actually been jotting down a whole bunch of ideas for uh, 2023 for the, the big conference in this summer in Maryland. So hopefully we'll see you there and have some, some new stuff for you there too. Or if you're not there, you can just get it from the website. Remember, anything that we say on the podcast is the opinion of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody, and Happy New Year. 